The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, June 13th. I'm June Thomas, bringing you a very special episode of the show. On Saturday, Noreen Malone, Nicole Perkins and I joined Brian Lauda and Brandon Tensley of Outward, Slate's LGBTQ podcast, for a live show at New York's Highline. We talked about Booksmart and coming-of-age movies, and we were joined by two very special guests, First Lady of New York City, Shirlene McRae, and Drag Queen Supreme, Ms. Cracker. This was recorded live in an outdoor setting, so it sounds a little different than our usual episodes, but it was a really exciting show, so we hope you enjoy it. And as always, you can let us know what you think by writing to us at thewaves@slate.com. Here we go. Clink, clink. Oh, hello. <laughs> hello. I was so busy staring at my absolute cocktail that I forgot that I, what I was doing up here. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming here today and joining us on this inaugural Slate Day, New York City. Uh, we are very excited to be kicking off the day with a boozy brunch, and we have, as you know, some amazing guests. So I will get right to it. Uh, Noreen, lead us off. Sure. Hi, everyone. So our first topic today is... But wait, Noreen. Can we talk for a moment about these cocktails that everyone's <laughs> enjoying? I think we have to discuss them. Does everybody have a cocktail from the Absolute Cocktail Bar? Yeah, cheers to that. Um, we thank them for sponsoring the show today. As planet Earth's favorite vodka, Absolute believes everyone has the right to live and love fearlessly. This Pride Month, Absolute is doing it big by rolling out a year-long rainbow bottle with one thing in mind, and that's love. Love for the planet, love for its people, and love for the LGBTQ spirit. 365 days a year. To celebrate, Planet Earth's favorite vodka is also giving you a chance to win a VIP trip to Pride in New York City. Enter now at www.absolutepride.com. No purchase is necessary, but you must be 21 and a U.S. resident. Registration ends on June 15th. See official rules on absolutepride.com, and it is void where prohibited. Now, Booksmart. <laughs> right, Booksmart. So we had to figure out a topic that both of our podcasts would have a lot to say about, and what we settled on was the feature film Booksmart, which is the actress Olivia Wilde's directorial debut, and I think probably in addition to the canon of American high school movies. Do you guys agree with that? So the plot of Booksmart, um, if you haven't seen it, there will be no spoilers, I think. We're going to try really hard to not spoil it. Um, so best friends Molly, played by Beanie Feldstein, and Amy, Caitlin Dever, are two very, very focused, high-achieving high school seniors who are uh, headed off to Yale in Columbia with a stop for a gap year in Botswana. Uh, but on the last day of school, they realized that while they'd been studying, everyone else had also been studying, getting into great colleges, in addition to having a life outside of class and going to parties. So the premise of the movie is Amy and Molly need one last achievement in high school, and that is having a great last night, going to the coolest last night of the party, not last night school party. And um, they are also trying to maybe make out or at least talk to their crushes there. So Brian... What did you think of the portrayal of high school in this movie? Did you recognize it? Uh, that's an interesting question. Not really. I think, I think actually one of my... I love the movie very much. I think it's like excellent and everyone should see it. But my one or one of my few complaints with it was that 
high school was almost too nice, like yes. too perfect. Um, everyone in, you know, every, I mean, there are people who were sort of coded as like, I guess, slightly bullish or like a little distant or something, but no one's like truly bad or like mean. And there's no like risk of, of like true harm coming to anyone mm -hmm. in the way that I think is still true in a lot of American high schools. Um, you know, I think one thing we could talk about is whether that's like a positive thing for a movie like this or a queer in a queer movie as well. But, um, but no, it didn't. It didn't really see. It seemed like an ideal kind of high school. Right. Yeah. Well, June, you are. You did not go to an American high school, unlike I believe the rest of us here. So, can you anthropologically describe for us the high school portrayed in this uh, movie, and then maybe compare it a little bit with your other learnings about American high schools from other film and television? Exactly. I did not actually go to American high school, but I've gone to American high school via television and film many times. <laughs> And this one was very different. And, and after a while, you're like, wow, nobody's being bullied. Nobody's, like, there are no mean girls. It's completely supportive. The only time that there's anything negative is when people are maybe not true to themselves or, like, when people are trying too hard. Like, the parents, I mean, the adults are basically absent in this movie in a way that is slightly weird. Mm. I mean... Well, they're played for laughs Yeah, they're played bit, right? for laughs. That's right. They're just kind of... They're, they're ridiculous. Parents are ridiculous. Adults are ridiculous. Not just parents, also teachers, ev everybody. Um, and partly because they're faking it. And it seems like young people today are just so genuine and so like in support of each other, except when you know there's a rich kid, and the rich kid is not popular, even though he's willing to, you know essentially buy everybody's affection, yeah. but they don't want it because he's not being true to himself. And I just did not believe that. If you're gonna get a ride in a cool car, you're gonna take that ride. You'd be on that yacht, yeah, yeah. like what? Yeah. He's on a boat, come on. Yeah. Right, I mean, so what are, what are some of the things that felt like a fantasy to you about the way that, that this high school was portrayed? I mean, so for one thing, um, one of the main characters is queer and it's just like totally not a big deal. She's been out for two years. The only like sort of, um, you know, controversy is that, or not even controversy, the only difficulty is that she hasn't actually, you know, kissed anyone yet, right? right? Like yeah. she hasn't actually had any requited love. That's yeah. the big thing. Yeah. There's also, um, you know, a moment in the bathroom where Beanie Feldstein's character overhears people talking about her. And, you know, in a movie that was made 20 or even 10 years ago, they might have been like, saying things about her appearance. Instead, they say she's a butterface, but for her personality, right? right? Which is like kind of a lovely fantasy about how nice the children are today, but I'm not totally sure it's true. It felt so aspirational to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. What did you guys make of that? Um, okay, so I'm gonna be a contrarian and let you know that I did not see the film. Um, <laughs> partly though, because I am um, Generation X, so I grew up with 80s and 90s teen movies, and I'm really tired of seeing teenage white girls, so I'm just like, I'm not interested in this, which is no disrespect, no shade to anybody who did see it and loved it, whatever, that's great, but I would like to see a night of hijinks and shenanigans for girls of color, where that is the most you know, challenging thing is a kiss, you know, and you don't have to deal with somebody's dead mother or, you know, some other sort of terrible physical trauma or whatever that often comes with coming-of-age stories for black girls or other girls of color. Um, so I did not see the movie. I'm sure it's great. 
Um, and then also I felt, and I don't know if it was just for my timeline, my social media experience, there was so much pressure to go see this movie that I was like, no, there's, there's going to be another movie about some teenage white girls next week. I don't necessarily need to go see this movie. So it wasn't, I just felt very uh, pressured in a way to, you know, support this film that did not support me. So I'm not... I didn't go see it. So I don't really have like too much to talk about when it comes to what happened in the movie. I'm, again, I'm sure it's great, it's beautiful, but I would also like to see that for other well, people. Why do you think there was such a conversation around the movie then? Like, why did it become such a thing on Twitter? Is it because it's like the high school experience a lot of people wish that they had seen or had themselves? Like, what do you think that's about? I don't know. I, I really didn't. I saw, you know, some ads for it on Twitter um, and sometimes on Instagram. But then once the story became, you have to go see it. You have to. It's the most important thing out. It has to beat these big, you know, studio films. Um, that's what I started to hear more about it, that it has to be, you know, Avengers or whatever else, the big movies that were out that right. weekend. Well, Brandon, I think a lot of people were excited by the portrayal of a high school gay relationship in this movie. What did you think about the way that that was handled as just like not a big deal? So I actually really loved the fantasy aspect of the movie. Yeah. Um, and so just because I think especially when you have the people, the sorts of people who are portrayed in the movie, young women, um, queer characters, um, there are so many movies where we see them having to deal with various traumas. Um, and so for me, this sort of the idea, there's this weird sort of protectiveness over marginalized people needing to be marginalized also in film. Um, that for me, like, like I said, like there's, there's so many of those sorts of films. And so I actually thought it was really powerful um, that you could, have, you could have these characters exist in a universe where they could, um, you know, that aspect of their identity was already sorted out. It was protected. People were supportive of it. Um, and they could sort of explore the sorts of things that their straight peers have always been able to explore in movies. So I actually love that. I, ha I was sort of annoyed by it. I, I'm sort of of the <laughs> Mean Girls era, and you know that was obviously more satirical, but also in weird ways more accurate about the ways that like high school girls in particular are cruel to each other. But then I had this realization that this movie is actually structured basically like a Midsummer Night's Dream. Like it is a fantasy, right? They're all going out into the night and they are like, it's like, it's the last night of college or of high school. It's totally this enchanted zone where anything can happen. They literally like, I mean, spoiler alert, I guess that they, um, they take some kind of psychedelic drug and, and trip, which is, you know, there is, there's even like a theater set piece. Like, so, okay, so in this imaginary midnight zone, kind of anything can happen, including high school kids being actually incredibly sweet to each other. Yeah. What, what did you guys think of the um, bathroom scene? Is that too much of a spoiler to bring up here? I mean, I think because we've published a piece on Slate.com about it, we can talk about it a little bit. Do, do you want to react? Well, so in the movie, um, Amy, Amy is the, so Amy is the girl who is queer, but she hasn't yet had um, any action, but she has a crush. Um, and then she ends up in a bathroom with a girl who's like a super hot girl who, you know, has always been, who has actually been the mean girl of the show. Yeah. And they end up kind of having what is a very convincingly awkward and fumbling first uh, encounter. Uh, and I guess the, the kind of polite way of putting it is that she maybe confuses orifices. Yeah. And there's a question of like whether any, anyone would actually do that. And, 
And I think probably it's a little like the specifics of it are a little un unbelievable. But also, um, I think the fact that uh, it, if, it, if we just take it to represent the sort of, I really want to do something, we're really trying to like do this thing that we really don't know how to do and that we really haven't, even in this very protected, um, supportive community, gotten any information on what I should actually do with a girl, yeah. then that was believable in that sense. Like the specifics may have been not believable, but the, f the vibe, the feeling, was believable. I also love any sex scene in a movie where people struggle to take their pants off because like I mean these pants like if I like these these are hard to take off <laughs> and like you it's not just like woo it's gone oh no, there goes cards. It's not just like woo it's gone like it's like you know it takes time and they that I thought was a lovely yeah. way of, of handling that yeah. Yeah she was really sensitive the director was really sensitive about it um I read an interview where she said you know it's written as this like gross out moment right which like any it seems like the sort of note from studios is like any movie about women, you gotta like have a really kind of gross scene in it to like just, you know, get people laughing or whatever. And she sort of took that and made it this like tender, weirdly tender moment, which I thought was kind of great. Yeah. And I think part of what I thought was really great about, um, you know, people have criticized that particular scene. And I think if there seems like there was sort of a lack of attention to that, I think part of it is because so much of the movie actually wasn't necessarily about finding romance. Um, I thought the powerful point of the movie was the female friendship that it portrayed, and it's something that we haven't really seen in that particular way in a lot of movies. And so actually when I first saw the movie, what I thought of was Can You Ever Forgive Me and Blockers were the movies that first sort of came to mind because it's, there are other movies that center friendship, right? Whether it's um, between women, young women, whether it's between queer friends growing or you know, uh, dealing with marginalization in the 90s. Um, but I think to have seen that in like a high school context, um, I think that was part of the point of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, it's true that the, the key friendship between Amy and Molly is so, like, what an aspirational relationship. And it kind of, if only we all had a friendship like that, like, that was just amazing. <laughs> is it? Oh my God, Molly yes. controls her. I'm, I'm with everyone in the movie who said that Molly controls her. Well, she does, but at least they're like... They each have, they have each other, you know? And I think that Amy... You're describing codependence. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, I wonder, so it seems like in the past few years, there's been a sort of moment where the queer teen movie is a thing. Um, I wonder where you guys would sort of locate that, this movie in that somewhat more specific teen movie canon, right? So there was like Love, Simon, there have been... There was Blockers last year, which was a sort of similar, like, okay, it's the end of high school. We all have to lose our virginity on this one night kind of thing. Yeah. Um, where, what, do you guys think this advances the conversation? This is the first one. Of, well, I haven't seen all of those, but I'd say this is the first one of that genre you're talking about that I've liked. So uh -huh. I, I like that. I think it, you know, I think it balances this thing that queer movies have to do well where either you if you make it like their queerness such a non-issue that it's not present then is it really a queer is it really queer representation right um or if it's like the whole point you know if it's a, like a big coming out story or whatever that's too much and i think this this threaded that needle really nicely in a way that i that i haven't really seen before yeah do you think people want fantasy or reality from their teen movies and 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 i will append on to the end of that What's your favorite teenage movie? And then we will move on to the next topic. But everyone can just tell. Mine is Mean Girls. I'll just tell you guys that. I'm a product of my time. 
I don't think I have one. I don't. I think like it's even though it's a, a genre that I watch a lot on TV. Like I've not been a huge fan of the movie genre of like teenage, because especially since so many of them are like gross out and and oddness. Um, I, I'm I'm very pro fantasy. Okay. Yeah, I think um, I prefer more fantasy than reality because I'm very much like I want to escape everything that's happening. Um, so I I would see I would say I would these teenage movies or coming of age movies should be more fantasy. Um, but for me, I think I like. Um, I don't know it was a teenage movie, but it's more of a coming-of-age story. So this movie called Eve's Bayou. Um, so it's a beautiful film that takes place in the New Orleans area, Louisiana area. Um, it's directed by, oh, no, I forgot her name as soon as it popped in my head. Um, you can look it up. Eve's Bayou. It's a great movie. Um, I think I love both types of movies, like fantasy but also reality. So, for instance, like last year or two years ago, there was Beach Rats. Um, which I feel like is the complete inversion of what we get with Booksmart. Um, but I think more recently, I, I think I've liked the, the fantasy aspect. And I think probably my favorite high school coming-of-age movie would be Bring It On. Um, great, great choice. And also I think when you're specifically talking about the queer aspects of it, I would say that um, Booksmart actually does advance the genre, right? Because Bring It On is a movie, I love it, but often the the characters, they're not really explicitly said to be queer or they're played for jokes, right? Um, and so I think it still was caught up in that sort of casual homophobia um, that you had in the early 2000s. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because I have the memory of a cat, I think um, I'm going to say Booksmart because that's all, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I only right. remember what just happened to that me, so that's it. That is a great note to end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's why they have you reading the ads, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> all right. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move on to our next topic, which is... We are very lucky today to have with us uh, the First Lady of New York City, Shirley McRae. As First Lady of New York City, Shirley McRae is a nationally recognized as a powerful champion for mental health reform. Ms. McRae created Thrive NYC, the most comprehensive mental health plan of any city or state in the nation. And a lifelong activist, First Lady McRae continues to fight for gender equity and LGBTQ rights, support survivors of gender-based violence, and create a more inclusive NYC. So when you guys leave the stage, the First Lady of New York City is gonna join us. We're so glad you're here with us today. Uh, and we also know that you have a plane to catch, so we're extra glad. Um, we want to start by just talking about the very concept of being a first lady. It's, you know, it it's just feels very strange and old-fashioned to kind of define a human by who they're married to or partnered with. And at the same time, I have to admit, I think it's really cool that the city I live in has a strong black woman as its first lady. Um, 
So to talk me through your relationship with that title and that role, how has it evolved over your time in the position? Well, I do think it is strange and old-fashioned, and I, I, I think they should come up with something better, but I refuse to let myself be defined by any title. I, I feel like that is very limiting to think, oh, I have to fit within this, um, this, this, this moniker that has been designed for, you know, for, for women who are the spouses of the, the mayors over time. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Times have changed. I am my own person. I have my, my, my own life and I should just get out there and, and, and do what I want to do, making the most of this platform, this very important platform that I have. Yeah. So I don't think about it a lot. Yeah, I, yeah, just, yeah. I just kind of be me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to note that your husband, uh, Mayor de Blasio, recently announced his candidacy for the presidency. Uh, what was your reaction when he, or what was the process of kind of deciding to do that and especially in a year where there are more viable female and people of color candidates uh, do we need another white man in the race like how, how did you work with him on that all white men are not alike <laughs> and we came to the decision as a family over a period of months many discussions and I'm not going to tell you what those uh, what we said during those discussions but it really is um, it really was a family discussion and decision, and you know we he wouldn't be doing it if we weren't all supportive of the of the effort, and I do believe he does bring different a different message, uh, different values to the campaign than than other candidates, and you'll be hearing a lot more about that going forward. <laughs> I wonder then, have you reached out to former First Lady Michelle Obama to get tips on how to survive the White House in case the um, campaign is successful? <laughs> you know, I reached out to uh, Michelle Obama before my husband became mayor to find out how to survive Gracie Mansion. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. And I think that the advice she gave me actually um, is the same advice I would take with me on, on, on the road now. Um, of course, it'd be nice to check in with her again and <laughs> see if she's got some uh, update to the advice she gave me back then. But I think that um, she's, uh, the path is different for everyone. Right. And there's only so much someone can tell you about, right. about how, you, how, you, how you walk that path, how you make that journey. Can you, can you share some a tip or something that um, she gave you for surviving being in, uh, a, a partner in a political office? I think the most important advice she gave me was to make sure I had a good scheduler and watch my time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, there are so many demands. Uh, there's, there are traditions, um, there's requests, demands, there's um, things that are part of whatever your mission is, your platform, and then there's things that you want to do. Um, there's not a lot of time. Yeah. So yeah. one has to be very focused, and I think her advice to you know, watch, watch your time, make sure you have time for yourself was, was, was really helpful. Um, obviously, each spouse or partner of a candidate decides how much of a, how much of a part they're going to play in their partner's campaign. How have 
you decided to to support your husband and and uh, what's your favorite hot dish in Iowa? <laughs> well, I um, have been a partner with my husband for a long time. We've been married for 25 years, as of you now two weeks ago. Oh wow! 25 years is a long yeah. <laughs> So I, I see myself as. Um, doing pretty much what we've always done. You know, I have an issue of, of focus. I, I focus on mental health, and mental health is not a, really a single issue policy. It, it, it affects everything. It affects um, LGBT, the LGBTQ community. It affects women who are incarcerated. It affects education and the workplace. So it's, it gives me a, a lot of room to move in. And I will be talking about mental health every day, um, just as I do now. Why I travel around the country. Well, uh, well, I wanted to ask since we were just talking about book smart, um, a lot of times there is this kind of concern trolling when it comes to queer content in film, television, and, and literature, where people are like, you know, how can we expose children to this? We should not give this, you know, have this kind of discussion in front of children. How do you respond to that kind of opposition that, you know, doesn't really seem to make sense? But how, how would you respond to that? I think we should be very conscious about what we're exposing our, our young people to. But I don't think about that in terms of the queer content. I think about the violence. I think about the um, not showing people indig with dignity, right? That that is much more of a concern to me. Also, not being inclusive. Um, I am so glad that we have much more inclusivity now um, in, in our media. We're not there yet. I mean, we're in a long, you know, we've got a long way to go, but, you know, I grew up in the, in the time in the 60s, early 70s when, you know, we still had, it was Tarzan movies, Shirley Temple. I never saw uh, positive black female images until I was in high school or college um, in terms of the broader mainstream media. And I think that's harmful. Those are the kinds of things that I, I think about, and those are the kinds of things that I want us to do a better job of showing better representation, greater representation of all the possibilities. You know, the families that, that are created um, in LGBTQ community, um, and, and uh, you know, it's not about just the, you know, with the traditional you know, man, woman, two children anymore. It's, uh, we're, we're in a new world, and we've got to show that. It's, um, I, you, you were talking about your work on mental health and I know that one of your big projects as First Lady and taking advantage of this platform is working with homeless LGBTQ youth, which you know feels like one of the, thus far at least, failures of the movement. I mean, 50 years ago, when Stonewall happened, that was, it largely happened because there were LGBTQ youth on the streets who really had nothing to lose and were like, I can throw a brick through a window because what, you know, really there's nothing, nothing worse could happen. And 50 years later, things are a little better than that, but still we have a terrible problem with this. What can we as individuals and also as a city do to try to counter this just endemic problem of, of homeless queer youth? Well, I'm very proud that um, just recently we announced the, the, uh, that we're going to put up a monument, the first public permit art, uh, public art, to honor trans women, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. That's huge. That's huge. 
And we have to do more of that to show, um, to show our history, to show the history that's been re uh, erased or at least not talked about as much. I'm, I'm very proud that we have made an unprecedented effort to make sure that our LGBTQ young people are, are safe, supported, and, and healthy. Um, as you said, 40% of our LGBT youth in this city are, are, are homeless because they've been rejected by their families. And we are working on making sure that families know that, um, that first of all, that there are other families like them and that they, they can get training and, and help to reconcile their, their fears and their worries about their young people so that their young people aren't rejected. We have a public awareness campaign, and I hope pe as people walk around the city, take the trains and the buses, they'll, they'll still see um, LGBTQ young people um, looking gorgeous <laughs> on bus shelters and on subways. I mean, I, we want to show the, the possibilities. We want to uh, connect families to direct resources. Uh, it's, it's not, this is something we can prevent. And, and we're doing everything we can to, to do that because we know that when uh, LGBTQ young, young, young people are rejected by their families, they have a higher rate of mental illness, higher rate of absenteeism from school, many do not finish school, many are uh, subject to violence, and, and um, certainly have better uh, physical health outcomes. Now, we can prevent all of that. So we've also have um, expanded our shelters and, and community centers around the city. We, have, we are expanding our 24-7 centers so that every young person who identifies as LGBTQ has a place to go, whether they're in the Bronx or Queens, Staten Island, or, or Brooklyn, that there's a place for them to go 24-7 and be safe to grow community and connect to city services. And that, that's the kind of thing that we all can support, we can all donate to, donate to um, those efforts to make sure that uh, we're doing our part. Right. Um, t in 1979, 10 years after Stonewall, you published an essay in essence called I'm a Lesbian. You've, you've just uh, republished it in the Stonewall Reader. How has it been for you to kind of deal with, with people knowing that, reading that? It's a very powerful essay, actually, about the importance of community. I mean, I, I'm very glad that people, it's easier now for people to read, but how has it been to, to kind of, do you ever regret publishing it, I guess, is the question that I'm asking. No, I never regret publishing it. I'm, I'm proud that I was brave enough to do it. Um, you know, my parents didn't want me to do it. <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad I did, and I think that I'm, um, I'm really pleased that it still has meaning for young people today. You know, I do run into young people and I say, oh my goodness, I saw it, and, and it really meant something to me. It, so I, I think that's a good thing, and I think it's good for people to know that there, that there is fluidity and, and sexuality, and that um, they don't have to feel stuck Right. One last question, I think. Um, one last question. Okay, we're gonna end on a lighter note. Something a little, um, I don't know. Hopefully, fun. Um, but <laughs> maybe not fun. I don't know. But what is your typical morning and night routine? Like when you get up, what's the first thing you do? Um, and then in, in the evening, how do you take the day off? 
Oh, you know, I have, I have no two days that are exactly alike, but I'll give you the basics. I get up, um, I put on my gym clothes because I like to exercise first thing in the morning. And that's kind of how I get my day going. By so you don't go to the park slope, why? I, I do. Oh, I do, but I got to put on my gym clothes first. <laughs> <laughs> but if I can't get to the Y, sometimes I just go for a walk because it's just about moving. I have weights in uh, my house so I can lift weights. I have a mat so I can do push-ups and all of that. I, I, that's how I like to start my day. I like to have a big cup of tea, maybe some yogurt or something, and that's how I, I get going by working my body. At the end of the day, which is sometimes really late, um, you know, I try not to eat too late because that just messes me up for the, the next day. But I like to have a glass of wine. I like to watch TV. I can't wait till the next season of Pose. <laughs> Very soon. <laughs> and that's when I hang out with my husband. And, and then we, uh, you know, I, I, I read. I read before I turn off the light. First Lady of New York City, Shirley McLean, thank you so much for coming here before you head off to Iowa today. We really appreciate your time thank and you. your presence. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everybody. We're here for our next segment. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to introduce our next guest. Uh, I would like to think her claim to fame is were her wonderful columns that I edited for Slate.com. Uh, but some of you might know her from a little show called RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, possibly. Uh, to me, she is a friend and the most brilliant queen I know. Please welcome to the Slate Day stage, Ms. Cracker. A queen with a message. I love it. I love it. Oh my goodness. Welcome, Ms. Cracker. Wow. Is she crooked? Hello, everybody! <laughs> She's it feels so weird having one of these in my face. Let me make it... There we go. That feels better. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Familiar? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hello. No more fooling around. How's everyone doing today? going to tighten this up. Um, Ready, tidy. Tighten that up. While you're tightening it up, I'm going to ask you yes. about that number. So that was from your show, American Woman, if I can say it the right way. Correct, and thank you so much. You're yes. welcome. Can you explain to us what that show is and why you are doing it? Um, American Woman is a drag show about feminism. Um, and I was super careful not to make it just mansplaining feminism in a dress, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like just me making fun of all of the things that I've done wrong as a cis man, as a cis gay, um, and the things I think I can do better as a drag queen in order to make the world a more welcoming place for women. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious as to what particular insights do you think being a drag queen gives you into feminism? Well, like, I don't think it gives you any special insights. I think no matter who you are, even if you are another woman, you constantly have to make leaps of imagination, be imagining other people, and what it feels like to be the person in front of you. Does that make sense? But it certainly helps to um, 
put on a woman's, uh, a, a, like a stereotypical woman's silhouette. Um, because as soon as you look like a stereotypical cartoon woman, you get some of the shit that women get mm-hmm. every day. And I don't know, that's not full insight, but it's like a tiny little chink in the wall. You're like, oh, what if it was like this all day long? You know what I mean? So yeah. It is, it's not definitely like, the, it's not the same, it's not equal, but it is definitely just that small window. Yeah. I mean, and I'm sure you also, because of that, uh, because you're in that outfit, you, you hear this sort of gay male misogyny that's like a specific kind. Can you describe like what that, what you're trying to combat basically with this show a little bit more? I think that um, when you go to gay bars, it's not, uh, misogyny is not a subtle thing. It's, um, there are limits on the number of women that are allowed into gay bars in a lot of New York City. Um, and you will hear uh, gays refer to women as fish or tuna Mm -hmm. and make smelly vagina jokes. And even though we have adult bodies, many of us still laughing um, in a very crude and cruel way about menstruation and tampons and all of that stuff. Um, And it's fine to do that usually if it's inviting and makes people feel good at the end of the conversation. But usually it's to help make women feel disgusting. Yeah. That's a lot of the humor that queens and gays use against women. So just remember how it's being heard. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we mentioned it's Pride Month. It is. And I feel like it's an important Pride Month. Um, what is- it is because Uber has those rainbow... <laughs> <laughs> It's so great. It's like a little pinwheel. You uh-huh. get to watch your cab like <laughs> spin in a circle <laughs> nine blocks north of where you are when you ordered it from downtown. It's like, well, at least it's rainbow now. <laughs> well, aside from that, what are you reflecting on? You know, what, what, what uh, themes or, or notions are you reflecting on this pride season? Well, like my brand is like happiness and celebration so that you know that most of the time I'm really thinking about death. Um, (laughs) And uh, so when I think about Pride Month, I'm really now thinking of survival. For me, Pride is about just celebrating all of us that are here and still alive, because there's so many reasons for us to be dead all over the world, you know? And I just, Pride Month is the month for us to come together and be like, you're still here and you're still here and he was here and like, do you know what I mean? Like celebrate life. Yeah. 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 That's wonderful. Um, I'm curious as to what is next. What is next for me? Well, I'm, God damn it. <laughs> I'm going to tour American woman around the world. Woo! <laughs> truly the world, right? Like the, the whole, truly the world. I'll be at the London Palladium, which is actually where that is the historic place where there's a Starbucks. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm going I'm to take it around the world. And I started here in New York because in New York, people will tell you to your face exactly what they think. And so I did it for New York audiences and then just sort of stood in the aisles and was like, all right. You know? And it was positive <laughs> feedback. So that's the next thing is to take this New York tested show on the road. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, well, speaking of that uh, and getting some feedback perhaps here in New York, yes. would you mind doing another number for us? Would you guys like me to do another number? All right. I think that is all the time we have for that. Are you doing the exit? Who's doing the exit? 
Well, we should thank people, right? Yeah, let's thank, thank you people. everyone for coming. Thank you to... Yeah. Thank you to our producer, Danielle Hewitt and Daniel Schrader. But most of all today, thank you to Faith Smith, who organized this amazing day, especially this quite complicated production. Thank you to Absolute for an open bar. Gotta love an open bar. Yeah. And uh, thank you to everyone. Uh, we will do it again very soon. Yes, Thanks we will. Listening.